All right, we are in uh, week three of our series. Uh, I will dance like David danced again. He's not dancing like at a, you know, a junior high dance. It's, it's nothing like that. So all the Nazarenes need to just, you know, relax. Um, he's just excited, right? He's just walking down the street. He's just incredibly excited because um, he has a relationship with the creator of the world. And that is incredibly special to David. You read in the Bible, he loves the word of God. He loves the word of God so much, but understand he loves the word of God because it has introduced him to his creator. And that's where David's heart really is. He's a man after God's own heart, right? After the face of God. But again, in order to enjoy the, the, the experience, the joy that David displayed, we have to join the dance that is the triune God. Parachorus is the word we have for it, the Greek word uh, that they came up with to describe this incredible inner workings of God the Son, God the Father, and God the, the Holy Spirit, all the way they work together in perfect unity. And what we've learned in this series is that if we join that dance, if we join them, not watch them, not be spectators, but if we join that dance, we experience that same joy that they experience. That's what it means when we pray in the name of Jesus. We pray in the name actually of Jesus God, the Holy Spirit. But when we pray in the name of Jesus, we know we're praying in all three. But really, that's what we're doing when we pray in their name. We're praying so that we can somehow be in the unity of that love, right? Not spectators to it, but be involved in what the God, the Father is doing, right? Creating beautiful spaces of life where there was once death. What is God, the Son, doing? Jesus Christ, he's, he's saving the world. We, we need to join in what he's doing and let people know the gospel, the good news, that God loves them. He's ready to forgive them. He's willing to forgive. He's already forgiven them. They just have to accept that free forgiveness. And then we have to join in what the Holy Spirit is doing. The Holy Spirit is drawing people into holy community, That's where we play a huge part in conjunction with the Holy Spirit. We don't sit back and watch the Holy Spirit. We don't say, pray, Holy Spirit, please bring my friends. We say, Holy Spirit, be with me when I go in and talk to my friends about Jesus and invite them to your house. Right? We join in what they're doing. We don't watch what they're doing. In other words, to join in the dance is to participate in the relationship that is God as he's revealed himself in Scripture. And when we join in that dance, that's when we... And only when we truly know God. But again, you can't dance if you've depersonalized the gospel. If you've given somebody all the news about Jesus, but you never gave them Jesus, right? You've done this before, maybe, or you've had somebody do this to you before. Um, Oh, you meet my friends, and you've heard a thousand stories about my friends, but you got to meet them, right? You ever have somebody tell you that? They've told you all the things, all you don't want to know about this person, but then they always said, but you got to meet them. That's what's going on here. We can tell people all the wonderful things about Jesus, but they got to meet them because it'll blow them out of the water, right? So depersonalize the gospel. You can't dance. You can't dance if you're only going to God for relevance, only when you need him, right? When you need an explanation and you're not going to him for a relationship. Again, that's like going to your neighbor, being friendly with him only because you want to borrow his lawnmower, right? And then you can't love from a distance. That's just... Can't love from a distance. So last week we looked at the first of our four scriptural words that will rob you of this joy uh, that would make you go down the street and you just want to start dancing. These words, if we misapply them or if we misunderstand them, they just, they rob us of joy and they get us involved in activities that don't give life, right? They get us involved in activities that actually move us away from our heavenly father. And it will feel like dancing with two left feet. The first word we looked at is spirituality. This word that our culture looks at, and it's kind of the catch-all phrase that describes everything in their life that's really important and really deep, right? It can include God, but it doesn't always include God. Strange thing. God part is kind of optional. But it's a great word because it explains so much, 
right? We all have that feeling. We all have, whether you're a follower of Jesus Christ or whether you are so far away from him, all of us have this, this, this feeling that out there, there's something, right? There's something out there in the beyond, not, not just necessarily out there, but beyond our ability to explain. There's also something within us. And the world can't put their thumb on what this thing is that's out there and, 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 and within also. And they, they, they call it spirituality, but we call it God. And our job as Christians, and again, we, we really got to lean into this as, because if it becomes an abstraction, if we separate the word spirituality from the spirit of God, then it becomes a cover for idolatry, right? We start to do things that, you know, we say things like, well, God wants me to have that corner office, right? Or God wants me to dump my lump of a husband and give me this beautiful woman who, right? Or there's this beautiful man who God has revealed to be, to be my soulmate, right? We start getting involved in really, really weird stuff if we separate love from the one who is love, God. And we get involved in just kind of crazy, crazy, crazy things. Long as, as long as it sounds nice and sincere, questionable motives quietly attach themselves to God. Here's where we ended up. Our job as Christians is to lean into the candles and incense crowd. I know when they start talking about all this stuff, you just start thinking, oh my goodness, they're so far from the truth. No, don't do that. Lean into that. See, this is your opportunity. This is our gift from God. They're recognizing something that you've also recognized, but now you know the author of. Right? So our job is to help the world right, reattach that word spirituality to the living spirit of God. Help people see that connection. Right? Introduce the folks to the author of what they're seeing and feeling. Right? We can say, hey, I, I know this person that you're feeling. So, huge thing. Um, second scriptural word today we're going to look at. It's been kind of muddied and altered by culture. It's the word soul. Right? One more. That's the one. Soul. Similar to spirituality, culture recognizes soul, but they either can't or they won't recognize what's behind it. Like with spirituality, you know, they recognize and sense a feeling or something's out there, but either they can't or they won't call it God. They just won't do it. So they, what would Paul say? They trade a, a lie for the truth, and that hurts us all. It just hurts us all. Right, The truth that they were hiding is the fact that the Spirit of God is what's behind all this aliveness that they sense and they call spiritual and spirituality and, oh, and they do all sorts of weird stuff, but it's God. It's God. So we, we, that's our job. We, we, we're going to bridge that gap. All right. So same thing kind of going on with this word soul. Soul's got a lot of meanings. You've heard of soul food, soul music. Every language, every culture has a word that, that describes, I guess, what makes us completely and comprehensively and in the totality human, right? There's, there's some kind of word in every culture and language that, that just gets to, the, gets to the heart of what a person truly, truly is. Um, and, and we have phrases for these kind of people, right? You've ever met a, an old soul, right? When you meet an old soul, what, what, what we're saying is they've have, they have somehow plumbed the depths of meaning and motive in their life, and they're like, they get it. Right? And we're all just like, oh, wow, what a soulful person. Right? And, we, and the soul word. So, again, culture recognizes a lot about it, but they don't understand what's going on behind it. We need to understand what's going on behind it. Second thing, soul also carries with it connotations of relationships. 
Right? There's this, this, an easy affinity to whoever or anybody, whoever is around, this, this, um, this at-homeness that you feel around a person who has soul. Right? You're just comfortable with them. There's no pre- pretense. There's no surface anything. They're just they're presenting who they truly, truly are. The problem with a lot of folks comes in with this last phrase. You've all heard that poor lost soul. Right? My grandma always said that. She's usually referring to me, but beside the point. Um, in our culture, we, we, we think of that word, of that poor lost soul, and, and we're, we're usually describing somebody who's lost their way, right? Either physically or maybe mentally or emotionally, socially. You, you just kind of, the phrase comes out, that poor lost soul, right? And, and it, it's kind of a, it's a safe phrase, but there's an incredibly, a startling scriptural origin to this phrase. This didn't come out of anywhere. This came out of actually a, a, a Bible passage. Um, this is it. This is in Mark chapter 8, verse 35. It says this, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Now, what's the result of either losing or saving your life? Like, what's at stake? It's in the very next verse. And this is what gets people freaked out. And this is what people, when they look at this and they hear about this, they're like, whoa, no thanks. This doesn't sound like a good deal. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? This is what's at stake if you don't give up your life. It's your soul. Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Hopefully everyone agrees nothing. <laughs> There's nothing, that, but we do. In other words, it sounds like, check this out, your life or your soul, but you can't have both. A lot of people read this passage and that's exactly where they end up. Like if I'm going to become a Christian, then God wants me to become just this mindless blob, right? To follow Jesus, apparently you either got to be a, a martyr, you got to die, literally die, or you got to die to yourself, right? You got to give up your identity. You got to lose yourself. You, you, you got to lose everything that makes you, you. Again, it's, like, it's almost like, is God asking me to become literally a mindless Blob, And a lot of people who look at Christians say you're just a bunch of mindless blobs. You gave yourselves up and now you're just robots. You can't think on your own. I don't, and they don't want to be a part of that because they value, they, they worship their own intellect. You can't, your life or your soul, but you can't have both. Sounds like you either have to sell your soul to the devil and play the blues or you have to sell your soul to God and then you got to live the blues Right? Either way, it doesn't sound like something, I, I, I'm not sure I want either one of these choices the way it sounds like. But what we want to look at today is that's not what Jesus is saying at all. He's not giving us this horrible choice. What he's actually saying is you can have it all. You can have it all. You can have your life and you can have your soul, but we got to make sure we understand what these words mean and what he's driving at. Or we're going to be just as confused as the poor disciples, right? They were, they, they're, they're always confused. Let's just, let's admit it. Um, all through chapter eight, if, if you go home today, this is your homework, dig into chapter eight. I'm going to be hitting aspects of chapter eight. I'm going to land heavily at the end of chapter eight. But everything in chapter eight, when you look at the gospel of Mark, is like the turning point. There's 16 chapters and in chapter eight, it's the midpoint. Everything has been building up. And at chapter eight, and from then on, he's going to be, it's the last week of his life. It Mark, the whole last half of his gospel spoke focus on the last week of Jesus' life. And chapter 8 is that pivotal point. And he's telling people, it's like in chapter 8, Jesus is telling people, um, I'm in my final week. I know it's getting close and you guys have to understand what I'm about. 
And he spends all of chapter 8 trying to explain to the disciples in half a dozen different ways. And as you go home, and as I, as I kind of reveal some of this stuff to you guys, you're going to go home and you're going, oh my goodness, the disciples, argh, what is their issue? Why don't they get this stuff? But again, they're just like us. We do the exact same thing, and we don't do the exact same things. Um, that, that's just the way it is. Poor disciples. Okay, so check this out. This is in chapter 8, and I'm going to give you kind of a, a cryptic passage. And, I'll, I, and I'm gonna, then I'm going to stop. We're going to pray. Um, we're going to continue to worship here, and then I'm going I'm to come back up here, and we're going to really, really dig into um, some passages in Mark. But in the middle of Mark, chapter 17, the, the, they're having a discussion. Jesus has just fed, uh, uh, fed 4,000 people. It's not the one where he's, he fed 5,000. That was previous. There were actually two feedings. He fed 4,000 people. The, the Pharisees had come, and they, they, they were kind of bugging him. We're going to get to that and all that. Um, but in the middle of all this, the disciples, I think, they're, they're, just, they're just clueless. Aware that they're discussing their cluelessness. What is he talking about? What is he talking about? What is he talking about? Jesus asked them, because what they were talking about is they, they forgot bread, right? Somebody didn't stop by 7-Eleven and get a loaf of bread, right? Or they, had the fed, they, they fed the 4,000 and nobody took home, like you've been to a potluck and they ask, does anybody want to take home leftovers? Well, apparently the disciples said, no, 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 they're all like holy and all. So they get across the, 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 the lake and no bread. And it's like, Jesus, why are you talking about having no bread? I just fed 4,000 people. What is your deal? You're so worried about this life. You're so worried about the things of this world. And oh, I'm so trying to get you to see that there's a, a more real reality than what you can see and hear and feel around you. But you're just not, you're not listening. You're never going to be able to dance if you listen, unless you listen. They don't get it. They didn't get it. We still don't get it, what Jesus was trying to explain to them and us. Because it's so counterintuitive. It really doesn't make sense as you read it, but once we dig into it, and if you grasp it and embrace it, you won't be able to stop dancing. You will not be able to stop dancing. You will walk out of here and people say, you're not a Nazarene, because <laughs> you'd be dancing. Bad. Hmm. I want to give you a sneak peek at the very end of my message. Because if you pay close attention, this is what's going to result at the end of this message. This is what Jesus told them. Truly, I tell you, some of you standing here, will, and I'm talking the words of Jesus to you all right now. I want you to understand something. Truly, I tell you, some of you who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. There have been people, again, I explained this last week, who have read this as it referred to his second coming, but that's not what Jesus is referring to at all. Christians have cherished this passage long past when that could have been the explanation. They cherish this passage because when you finally get what we're going to talk about today, this will be you. You will experience the power of the resurrection in your life, not when you die, but you will experience it today. So I want that to be our prayer this morning. That we would, we would surrender to whatever God's word is telling us this morning. And that we would find a life so worth living that we would not be able to stop dancing. If you bow your heads, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for, for Mark, your, your, a young disciple uh, who loved you and, 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 and explained things that, that we need to hear and we need to understand. Um, so, Father, this morning, through, the, through your servant, Mark, 
I pray that every person in this room would, would, would catch a glimpse of what the, those early disciples, they didn't understand, but then near the very, very end, they finally got it. And those 12 cowards became the most courageous men the world has ever seen. What changed them, Father? We know, we, we, we've read your book. <laughs> your son changed them. And Father, this morning, I just pray that, that by the power of your spirit, uh, and by the power in your word, your living word, the folks here this morning would, would, would recognize something that would make them just want to stand up and shout and dance. That they would go right down the street, car-carring and pizzazzing right down the street. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for your son and for your Holy Spirit. Father, that we would join in what you're doing and that we would cease to be spectators. Because if we join you, our joy is made complete. That's what your word promises. So, Father, this morning, there are a ton of needs in this place. I I know this. And Father, I know that you have been answering prayers. You have been, you've been healing people. You've been healing their spirits because spirits get broke when our bodies feel broke. But Lord, you address that reality. You, you just do. And so Father, I just pray for more of that power on this place this morning. That we would be healed in this place. That we would recognize that, number one, we are broken. And number two, that we can be fixed. But we can't do it on our own. We need what your son did for us. And we need the power of your spirit to follow your son. Father, give us that power this morning. For us simply to follow Jesus. Everything else falls into place because of who you are, Jesus. In your name I pray. Amen. Let's talk about the Bible then, all right? I kind of promised you that, right? When I came back up here, we'd talk more about the Bible. Um, biblically speaking, let's talk about this word soul, right? Throughout God's word, biblically speaking, it's, it refers to the totality of humanness that culture describes as soul, Right? But it includes God and all of God operations. Culture doesn't recognize that part of it. They, they, they call it, right, this, this, like I was explaining earlier, it's the deepest aspect, it's the deepest description of, of the deepest part of our humanity. Um, but biblically speaking, it always includes God and God's operations, right? We use the word soul to, to denote God origins, God intentions. All the God operations that make us who we are and what we are uniquely. But in our current culture, soul has given away to a new word, self. Self is a term we now use to describe the totality of who we are and what we are. Biblically speaking, we use the word soul, who we are and what we are, but the culture, our world, minus God, who we are and what we are. Self is the soul minus God. Self is what's left of soul when all the transcendence, right, all that beyondness squeezed out. Self is what's left of soul with all the intimacy, all that within-ness squeezed out. 
We have words, selfish, self-absorbed, self-centered. You, you, you get the idea, right? Self is a word that's very isolating. It's a very individual. God and other people are squeezed out. It's all about you. It's all about the self. Unless, of course, and this is crucial here, and this is where everything gets ugly. Because when, when self replaces soul, we all, me and you included, we all become either projects for somebody else or problems for somebody else. We're either a resource or we're a problem. Because if that's all about me, then as I look at you, you can only detract from me or you can add to me. Because you don't have value in and of yourself. In the self-centered world, I'm the only one that has value. So when I look at you, I have to determine, are you trying to sell me something? Or have I decided that I want to try to sell you something? Right? Because you're, you're a marketplace term now. Minus God, you're nothing more than a resource for me. And our Savior, and our friends, and our neighbors, and we... We lose all of our value for just who we are. You ever have somebody do that to you? And you recognize this person's using me. They don't, li- they don't even like me, but they're being really chummy. Anyone ever? And, and you just, you revolt against it. There, there's something about it. You just, I don't know what it is because you're being treated like an object, right? Who you really are has nothing to do with what they want. They just want something that I have or can give to them. So what was Jesus talking about when he said this? Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves. This is in Mark chapter 34. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. And we looked at this. Whoever wants to save their life. That sounds like it's not a bad thing. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. What? And whoever loses their life for me and the gospel We'll save it. First of all, I want to tackle that word life. Because once we tackle it, we'll, we'll have a better understanding of what Christ is asking us to deny. Because it's really not the life that you're thinking about. Um, the Greek word that we have in our passage, um, and it's a very specific word, it's psyche. Right? We get the word psychology from it. Um, but in the Greek, it meant something very, very specific. And we have to lean into that message. We can't lean into the way we understand psych like it's a TV show, like, ooh, anything like that, right? In the Greek, psyche, psyche meant um, yourself, right? It, was, it, it meant your, your identity, your personality, uh, your selfhood. Your psyche is what made you distinct. Now, you notice how I highlighted up on the screen behind me. And, and those highlighted words, that, that kind of tells you what the focus of psyche is. It's, it's really you. Biblically speaking, the way the Greek is used in this passage, Jesus is talking about that part of you that's purely you. Again, Jesus is not referring to losing your sense of being an individual, an individual that was God-breathed into, created and greatly valued by God. Remember, that's your soul. Jesus is not saying to become a mindless, soulless blob, right? He would have said you have to lose yourself in order to lose yourself if that was the case, right? That's an Eastern religious philosophy where in Hinduism and Buddhism, eventually you reach the, that stage where you yourself ceases to exist, right? You are, you are essentially yourself is obliterated. You are lost in the consciousness that is this. You are, lost, you are a drop in the sea that is the consciousness of God. That's kind of an Eastern 
philosophical thing, and that is not what Jesus is saying here, that you got to lose yourself. He's saying something radically, radically different. Life here refers to everything about you minus God. Psyche. Everything about you that's uniquely and only you minus God. This is the biblical understanding of our word life in this passage. The very thing that the disciples were so worried about right after Jesus fed 4,000 people. This is in 8, chapter 8, verses 14 and 15. Kind of, kind of catch their, they're worried about bread, right? They're worried about bread, life, this life, eating, physical nourishment. And all through chapter 8, Jesus is saying, look, there's a bigger reality than your stomach, and a loaf of bread. Now we're going to use those metaphors to explain something, but uh, right? He says this, disciples had forgotten to bring bread, right? Except for the one loaf that they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. Now I'm going to explain this. What he's saying is don't build your life or your identity, your psyche around the things of this world. Don't build it around self, Notice something, that Jesus is calling the self, which is you minus God, he's calling it yeast. And in the Jewish mind, yeast is evil. Represents evil. So evil that even a tiny amount left in the dough will spread throughout the dough and, and, and affect the entire batch. That's what evil does. Just the tiniest amount will just wreck everybody. One, one bad apple wrecks the whole barrel. Something like that. I'm not a farmer. <laughs> Those of you who are farmers, go home and work that one out. Um, deny these aspects of your life. Not your, who you are uniquely in God's eyes, but those aspects that you've created for your glory. Deny those aspects of your life. So what are those aspects? Jesus mentions two of them, the yeast of the Pharisees and the yeast of Herod. And these are both very, very important. Back in verse 11, immediately following the feeding of 4,000. The feeding of 4,000 is so incredibly important. <laughs> anyway, um, verse 11, immediately following the feeding, the Pharisees had just asked Jesus to perform a sign, right? We're going to talk about the, the, uh, the yeast of the Pharisees first. Chapter 11, it says the Pharisees, immediately following the 4,000, the Pharisees came and began to question Jesus to test him. They asked him for a sign from heaven. So to the Jewish people and the Jewish religious authorities, they understood that when the Messiah came, he would do incredibly abnormal, out of the normal, unnat not necessarily unnatural, but not normal things. It would be spectacular. It would break all the laws of, of nature. And, and that would prove that he's God. That he's the Messiah come in the name of God. And, and, and really that's what the, the, the Pharisees were asking. It's like, Jesus, prove to us who you say you are. A lot of false prophets had come into the Galilee, the region, in the years around Jesus. It was a very big thing because they were all waiting for the Messiah. So if you're a con artist, hey, be the, con, be the Messiah. You know, if you can pull it off, you could take the, take the people for quite a bit. And there were a lot of them. And what they would always promise, they would always promise crazy, out, outrageous feats of mm, spirituality. And not magic, but um, a power. And they always kind of related and connected to a lot of the events of the Old Testament. Like a, a false prophet would come up and say, um, I'm the Messiah, and to prove it, I'm going to part the waters of the Jordan River. Just like, you know. Or I'm going to, I'm going to knock the walls down. I'm the Messiah, and to prove it, I will have the walls of this city fall down. Right? Everyone, all the Jewish people, oh, Jericho. Oh, this guy's for real. 
Right? And so they all had this, this, this habit that they would have. They would promise these crazy things. But to Jesus, the whole world was already evidence of, Jesus, of, of God's presence. He didn't have to call down God into this world. According to Jesus, God was already in this world. He didn't need to break into it. In Christ, Christ, God is already in this world. And, and according to his Holy Spirit, he is already in this world. And Jesus basically says, you know what? No. <laughs> I'm not going to give you a sign. You're not looking for a sign. From the hand of God, because you refuse to recognize the hand of God, you just want to see something amazing. He sighs deeply and said, why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to it. And then he left, got in a boat, and crossed to the other side. Again, in asking for a sign, the Pharisees were asking for a display of power. Individual power. And to the Pharisees, the use of the Pharisees was individual power. And it kind of came out as what we would call legalism. That was a big aspect of it. They will be so perfect that God will have to bless them. Legalism says it's all about you. You earn your way to God, and then God has to accept you because you kept every rule. It's all about you and your power and your prestige and and glorifying you. You kept all the rules. This is the yeast of the Pharisees. Again, this is how Herod had tried to build up happiness through gaining power and wealth and influence and prestige. In other words, a kingdom built on self, the soul minus God. And of course, the disciples were, again, they they were lost as always. Immediately after Jesus warns them about the yeast, because everyone thinks bread when they think of yeast, right? And again, the disciples, they they, they just don't get it. He's talking about yeast, and we're going to pick up on verse 16. They discuss this with one another. Is Is it because we've been talking about bread that he's now talking about yeast? Like, they are so clueless. They just, they have no idea, why is Jesus talking about yeast, right? We need bread, and, and is this why? What's the connection? Um, aware of their discussion, Jesus asks them, why are you talking about having no bread? Jesus is talking about their soul. They think he's talking about their life. He's talking about their soul, their life with God, and he's, they're thinking about their life, their physical life, their, their life as represented, not spiritual, but, but physical stuff. And Jesus is saying, oh, the two are connected. You can't separate them like that. Jesus continues in verse 17 and 18. Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do your ears, do your eyes, do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember... This we're going to get back to the feeding. This is crazy what he says. He continues. Listen, guys, when I broke the five loaves for that five, remember, remember that? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets, basketfuls of pieces did y'all pick up? Twelve. Now, I don't want to get into the whole 12 thing, but there were 12 tribes. It represents quite a bit in Jewish thinking. But just hold off on there. He continues, verse 20 and 21. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They responded, seven. And again, I'm not going to go deep into numerology, but seven represents wholeness, completeness in Jewish thought. He said to them, do you still not understand? Why all the worry? Don't you remember what happened before? You don't need to worry about these things if you are with me. If yourself has a soul, you don't need to worry about anything because there's nothing in this world that can take from you. This world can do nothing from you if your yourself or your life has a soul, if it has God 
in it. And what about the yeast of Herod? What was the connection between Pharisees and Herod? Here's how Jesus put it. Verse 36 and 37, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? This was the yeast of the the Herods. They were after money, wealth, power, prestige. Anyway, they didn't get it through religion. They just got it. They just took it. They just took it, and that's what they felt was made their life powerful, what gave their life meaning, what told them that they were important, that they were loved, and they were somebody. It's because they had power and wealth and prestige and influence. They had a psyche. They didn't have a soul. Every culture points to things and says, look, if you have these things, then you have a self. You have a valuable self. And this is what Herod had built his kingdom on, performance and achievement. But Jesus is saying, look, you can gain the whole world, but it still won't convince you that you're loved, that you're valuable. Because if you lose anything from the world, there goes your value. You now are valueless. If you placed your value in your home or your career or your wife or your kids or whatever, and then they go away, your value goes away and you are now valueless. Both Herod and the Pharisees had built kingdoms to self. The Pharisees with legalism and Herod with power and wealth. I want to take one last look at verse 35. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. I want you to notice something. Jesus doesn't leave it at an abstractness. He doesn't say, right, exchange the life that you built for yourself for a life built around God. Okay, that's very, that, that's still, even though we're talking about our Heavenly Father, God in our culture and even in Christianity is still a very, very, it tends to be a very, very generic kind of term and idea and it includes so much when we use the term God. But that's not what Jesus said. He, he, he made it very personal and he made it very real. I want you to do this for me. And the good news of that what I did, you now have life. That's why I want you to do it. People will do stuff under the rules. People will do stuff under threat. Or, but people will do amazing stuff because of love. Love changes everything. So he said, don't leave this abstract. Receive me into your life for the sake of what I've done for you. For the sake of the gospel, the good news. Finally, one last thing. If you've come to Jesus for just a new and improved self... You're not really coming to Jesus at all. You're once again using him. And you are literally admitting you're not interested in a relationship. You'd just like to give him, have him give you a new self. I'll start going to church and then I'll get spiritual is what you're thinking, right? C.S. Lewis at the very end of Mere Christianity, incredible book. The very last couple of pages he writes this. says, the more we get what we now call ourselves, or our self, the more we get what we call ourself out of the way and let him take us over, the more truly ourselves we become. Our real selves are all waiting for us in him. The more I resist him and try to live on my own, the more I become dominated by my own heredity and upbringing and surroundings and natural desires. In fact, what I so proudly call myself becomes merely the meeting place for trains of events which I never started and I can't stop. Anybody ever try to control life? (laughs) Yeah, didn't work. What I call my wishes become merely the desires thrown up by my physical body and pumped into me by other men's thoughts. 
It is when I turn to Christ, when I give myself up to his personality, that I finally begin to have a real personality of my own. Nevertheless, you must not go to Christ for the sake of a new self. As long as your own personality is what you're bothering about, you are not going to him at all. Give up yourself, and you will find your real self. Lose your life, and you'll save it. Submit to death, the death of your ambitions, your favorite wishes every day, and the death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being, and you will find and he uses the word eternal life, and we very quickly jump to heaven with that word, but that is not what he's driving at. That's what the Bible is not driving at. When they use the word eternal life, he's talking about life in Christ here and now. Don't be confused. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will, really, will be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself... And you will find in the long run only hatred and loneliness and despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ, and you will find him, and with him, everything else thrown in. This is what it means to give up our lives. All he's asking us to do is give up our thrones that we've made to ourselves, the kingdoms of this earth that we created that glorified us says, give me that part of your life, and I'll give you something new. And it won't be about you. I'm going to give you my son. I'm going to give you his desires. And when you join in in his desires, your, your joy will be unbridled. You, you will not be able to stop dancing. I want to close with two promises. First in Matthew 3, chapter 5, verse 3, it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed in the Jewish culture meant wealthy. Wealthy, rich are those poor in spirit. That's kind of strange. What he's saying is wealthy are those who recognize their need for a soul. Wealthy are those who understand the nature of real poverty. So there's a lot of folks without money, but he's saying the folks without a soul are ten times worse off than those without money. You would be lucky to be without money compared to being without a soul. Without denying our self-worth, Jesus asks us to deny our self-centeredness so that his priorities become ours. His life becomes ours. He gave up his life so that we could have a life. And once you realize and live these truths, hit that last slide there, Truly, I tell you, some of you who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. When we decide to live a life, a soulful life, a biblically soulful life, the church will gain the power of the resurrection. We will not be able to be stopped. We will not be able to be stopped. We will see the power of God coming in power, and that is continuing to this day. God's power has come. The church has grown. People are finding Christ and salvation and being <laughs> fixed, made whole again, because they decided a self, that's not a life, but a soul, a life lived for his purposes, 
That's amazing. That will change the world. Bow your heads. Father, thank you so much for these passages. For the fact that you, you understand true poverty. And it's not, it has nothing to do with money. It has, has to do with the richness of our inner life. And that's only, only one word, and that's God. So, Father, thank you for your son who paved that way, who bridged that gap so that, so that, Father, you, so that I could call you Abba Father, I could call you Daddy. And I wouldn't have to live in fear of you, and I wouldn't be living separated from you, but because of what your son did, I can come into your presence. Everyone in this room can be in your presence without fear because we know we are absolutely loved because you gave the life of your son for us. And then when he went to be beside you in heaven, we got the gift of the Holy Spirit, which is God alive and present in our lives. We've got a soul, Father. Thank you so much. Father, help us to be sold out for you. Thank you, Father, in your son's name I pray. Amen. Folks, have a wonderful week. Thank you so much.